Last week, Father Brent, he spoke on this issue of conflict, and he tackled this really hard text about how we are called to live together in Christian community. And the week before that, if you've been hanging out with us for a while, I brought a really, really encouraging word on the devil and the devil's tricks of accusation and blame and how we fall victim to these things. And today, again, in what I hope is in joyful fashion, um, I want to speak to this impossible demand that Jesus makes of us when it comes to forgiveness. To forgive, not seven times, but 77 times, or as some translations say, 70 times seven times. If all of this feels a little strange or it doesn't seem to sit right, all of this talk about conflict and accusation and forgiveness, I think it's because it points to this disturbing reality that the Christian life is an embodied life, that what we are adhering to is not just a system of beliefs or a way of thinking about things, but that somehow this Christian life actually draws us in, requires us to put our body in physical spaces and to actually interact with one another, to be a certain kind of people in the world. And what we have to discern is how we live in community. And specifically, how we live in community that is under the judgment of God without judging one another. Because when we start to do the judging, we start to step into work that God has claimed for himself. Space that God has marked out for himself. And when we start to move into that space, we start to edge out the space that God has made for God's judgment, for God's forgiveness, for God's healing. There are a couple of texts that I want to draw our attention to this morning. In Romans 13, starting in verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. And then listen to this, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Think about this, love does no wrong. To a neighbor. Not that love does only a little wrong, or that love does sometimes wrong, or that love tries not to do wrong. Love does no wrong. And not only that, but Paul begins by saying that love is the debt that we owe to one another. Owe no one anything except love. That we are eternally infinitely indebted to love one another. Another text that I think is worth bringing to mind this morning as we set out on a bit of a journey is from Psalm 149, verse 6, that says, Let the high praises of God be in their mouths and a two-edged sword in their hands. 
I think this is a life verse for many of us. <laughs> that we live with God's praise on our lips and a sword in our hands. And for a lot of us, these days, a sword often looks like a keyboard. Are we having fun yet? So the question that we have to ask is, how do we live in ways that do no wrong to one another? In ways that take seriously the debt that we owe to one another, both to loving and to forgive one another in the way that Jesus calls us to forgive. I think it's interesting in our gospel text when we hear of the king who forgives this debt of 10,000 talents. Now, this is a little odd, but you know, the exchange rate of talents to US dollars is not exactly one to one, okay? Um, some scholars estimate that 10,000 talents then would equate to somewhere between three and seven billion dollars now. Which does beg the question, what kind of king lets someone incur that kind of debt? Five billion dollars in debt? And then what's more, for the king, Forgiving that debt does come with an expense. When we talk about servants, we're not talking about people who were hired in his home or people who just served in the home of this king. This would have been anybody who lived in the kingdom. And so to forgive that debt on some level happens at the good of the kingdom. He has to set aside the well-being of the kingdom in order to have mercy on that person. The king takes on this wound of loss in order to make room for healing. Frederick Buchner, he has this famous line in his novel Godric where he says, What is friendship but the giving and taking of wounds? To be people who love one another and who forgive one another means that we are inherently a people who wound and are wounded by one another. And for many of us who have lived in community for any amount of time know that to live with other people is exactly this. It is to wound other people and to be wounded by them. This is marriage. This is parenting. This is all of our meaningful relationships that actually constitute community and life together. To be human is to be thrown into a world with other people who are wounded, wounding you, as you who are wounded, wound them. In biblical terms, we are always acting as David to someone's Saul while we are at the exact same time, Saul, to someone else's David. But what the Apostle Paul seems to suggest here is too much for us to bear. That we love, and we love in a way that does no wrong. The kind of love that does not come naturally or easily to us. This is a kind of love that has to be learned by us. It was Augustine who coined this term, incurvatas. And it's this idea that our broken human nature is so corrupted that even the things we do with the best of intentions really are self-serving. 
they're really just still wicked. And so on our own merit, we have no ability to love one another correctly, that even when we try to step out in love, it still comes back to self-serving. Even when we try to love God as best as we can, we still, on some level, have our best interests in mind. In curvatas, we are so curved that everything comes back to ourselves. This is where we get the idea of wicked, which is the idea of wicker furniture, which you've ever seen it. It's wood that's so twisted back on itself. So even when we love, we don't tend to love rightly. Even when we seek after God, we still have our own interests in mind. But Paul is saying that this is a kind of love we have to learn. The kind of love that does no wrong. To help us make sense of this and to help learn what this kind of love looks like, to be wounded while wounding others, I want to walk us through a couple of stories that we're probably familiar with. In 1 Samuel, we have this story of David and Saul, who I mentioned a moment ago. And Saul has become king under some really unusual circumstances. Uh, the people of God are saying they want a king, and so God gives them a king, but he basically says, you don't know what you're asking. And so Saul ends up being this kind of salt in the wound, right? Like he is trouble from the very beginning. And then God eventually ends up rejecting Saul through this guy, this prophet named Samuel. And Samuel says to him, to Saul, he says, God has rejected you and favored another who is better than you. Oof. Can you imagine that being the word that the Lord has for you today? <laughs> that God has rejected you and he has favored one who is better than you. And so Saul turns extremely bitter toward David and then we know how the rest of this story goes. He's throwing spears at David even when David is coming to try and comfort and console Saul. And eventually it gets to the point where David just has to flee. He just has to leave in fear of his life. And one of the stories we pick up in 1 Samuel 24 is this story of David and his men who are hiding out in a cave. And all of a sudden, who strolls in but King Saul? And he's come in to relieve himself, as you do, in a cave where six other, six, not six men, 600 other men happened to be hiding out. <laughs> and so here's Saul. He is committed to killing David. And David has this incredible opportunity in this situation right here. Literally has caught Saul with his pants down. And instead of actually taking his life, David stealthily makes his way to Saul. And what does he do? He cuts off just the corner of his robe. Now, for most of us, this would be a victory moment, right? That I had the opportunity to kill you, and all I did was cut off the corner of your robe. But even then, David has this unusual moment where he has this, this revelation that Saul is still the Lord's anointed. And he says as much. Listen, he says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. 
to raise my hand against him, for he is the Lord's anointed. And then David goes on to say that I shouldn't have shamed him in this way, the cutting of the corner of his robe. He says, I could have killed him. And most of us at this point would be proud to acknowledge that we could have killed our enemy, but instead all we did was shame them. And David seems to realize that it's in this moment when all we do is take advantage to shame someone that we are actually violating their image. That word that we speak, thinking that that person will never hear. That word that is spoken in judgment and in critique and in bitterness, that cutting away at the corner of their robe, that too David says, is an offense. It's an offense to the image of the anointing of God that rests on every person. And so David, he chases after Saul, and once he's left the cave, he tells him the whole story, and then he says to Saul, I will not raise my hand against you. Essentially, I am leaving room for God and for the Lord's vengeance. And he says to him, if the Lord wants to avenge me, he can do it. This, I think, is how we must learn to respond to the wounding of a friend. David calls out the wicked thing that Saul has done. He doesn't let it go unsaid. He still tells Saul that he's in the wrong. But then he tells him that he's had an opportunity to kill him and says that he is leaving room for the vengeance of God. And why? Because David knows that every time we start to take space that God has claimed for himself, the space that's left for God's vengeance, that we edge out the vengeance of the Lord. And then in an odd turn of events, Saul hears David's cry and the way that he has called out Saul for all the wrong that he has done, and it starts to pull back the veil for Saul. And there's this moment where Saul essentially says, you're right. And he says, I swear by the Lord to not cut you off. And there's this brief healing moment. But get this. Even in this moment, they go different directions. The text says that Saul went home, but David went back to the stronghold. Just because things seem to be okay, between you and the one who has wounded you, it doesn't mean you don't go your separate ways. It doesn't mean that you don't create healthy space for yourself. Even when reconciliation is possible, part of being a discerning person and living at peace with other people, sometimes this looks like agreeing to keep your distance. This particular story goes on and just a couple chapters later, Saul is once again chasing after David. This is happening in chapter 24. Go and read uh, chapter 25 of 1 Samuel because there's this whole witch of Endor moment that if you don't know this story, you just need to read it. It's incredible. Great Halloween story now that we're moving into the fall. Chapter 26, we have almost this deja vu moment of what has just happened between David and Saul. So what we see here is that David catches wind that Saul is once again coming after him. 
And he sneaks into the camp where Saul is sleeping and he steals his spear. And once he is out, he calls to the camp. Once he's a safe distance away, he yells back. And the text says he's at a safe distance. And this whole scene plays out all over again. That David has heard Saul say, I won't seek your life anymore, that you will be king. But here they are again. Saul is seeking his life. And David yells out again, why are you hunting me? And Saul, in tears, again, admits that he's wrong. And he says, I have done wrong, so come back, my son David, for I will never harm you again. Saul invites David to come back. And David responds, here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and get it. Here is the spear. Now, We know this, that this is the same spear that Saul has thrown at David time and time again. It is the spear that has again threatened his life. But here David wisely says, here is your spear. This thing that you've used against me over and over again, here it is. And that is what the double-edged sword in our hand looks like. With praise on our lips, this is the sword that we all yield. With the praise of God in our mouths, the sword that we end up holding is not our own sword, but it is the sword of everyone who seeks to do us harm. Everyone who has wounded us. And we make this decision as the people of God to say, I give it to you again. Seventy times seven, I give it to you again. We don't do this foolishly. Like David, we keep our distance. Maybe send one of the young men back to come and get it. But he doesn't come back. He doesn't enter foolishly into a place where that killing is easy for Saul. But he does say this. He says, this is your spear and I'm going to keep giving it back to you until you see that I will not protect myself, but I will leave room for the vengeance of God. This is how we live in community. In our Old Testament text for today, we have this story of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea on dry land as they're fleeing from Egypt. And as the story goes, we know they cross over because God has parted the seas. He's made a space for them. And once they've crossed, the waters come crashing back down and they destroy Pharaoh's armies who are pursuing them. This is what we usually want for our enemies. That we get to go off into the safe place that we believe God has called us to. And then as soon as we're there, that God will send the waters and destroy those who are pursuing us. We want God to hurl our enemies into the sea. But this isn't what it looks like to live in community. In the ancient wisdom text of Proverbs, it says, when the wicked perish, there is singing. But then they go on to say, when your enemy falls, do not rejoice. One of the rabbinic interpretations of this text, which is what Dr. Green and I were arguing over, this interpretation says that as the people of God were rejoicing, 
and they're singing and they're praising that the Egyptian, Egyptians had just been swallowed up. This commentary says, On seeing the drowning Egyptians, the angels were about to break into song when God silenced them, declaring, How dare you sing for joy when my creatures are dying? How dare you sing for joy when my creatures are dying? This is at the heart of the gospel. That as wounded people who are wounding others, who are being wounded by other people at the same time, we should still hope to see everyone healed. Even those who wound us. Even as some of the church fathers have said, even the devil. Listen to this. This is Origen, and he is speaking on this gospel text about forgiveness. And he says, The devil is the brother who has sinned against us 70 times, seven times. And we are obliged to forgive him too. (laughs) What do you do with that? I don't know. What we do know is that water is deeply symbolic to the Christian life. Whenever water is mentioned in the text, it's meant to point us to remembering how water makes way for newness of life. We're asked to remember our own baptism and what that means for us as a people, that we are the baptized. The baptism makes us the people of God. And we also remember that our baptism is not our own, but that we follow Christ in his baptism. And that's why going into the water is good news for us. Bob Ekblad, he's a pastor, theologian, he makes this comment. He says, Jesus' baptism differs from Israel's, speaking on Israel crossing over the Red Sea. He says, Jesus' baptism differs from Israel's in one critical way, that unlike the Israelites, he doesn't pass through on dry land, but instead suffers immersion into the waters, into the floods, just like Pharaoh and his armies. We go where Christ goes because underwater, God's people join the damned to make space for the healing work of God. To be one of the baptized is to say, here is your spear again, because I owe you an infinite debt, not because of what you've done for me, but because of what Christ has done for us. What binds us together as the people of God is not our shared history or not the moments that we participate in together. It's not how well or how poorly you've treated me or how well or poorly I have treated you. What binds us together is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, for us. And while we were enemies of God, God reconciles us to himself. So we are infinitely obligated to stay together. And here's the thing, that we are going to wound one another. If you are a part of this community for any amount of time or any other church community for any amount of time, you are going to be wounded and you are going to wound others. But there is a way to wound one another as we open ourselves up to be wounded. And that kind of vulnerability and that openness to keep 
coming back, to keep handing back that spear, even with those people who hurt us, we trust in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. What we trust is that those wounds eventually become the wounds of Christ. And there is no way you can wound me that doesn't mark me as a follower of Jesus so long as I respond in his spirit. I'm sure you're all aware that just a few weeks ago, we celebrated the feast of St. Moses the Ethiopian. I'm sure you had great time celebrating the feast of St. Moses the Ethiopian. And he is quite a character in the church's history. He was a robber and a man of violence. And while he was fleeing from the law, he stumbles into a monastery, and he is so impressed with their way of life (laughs) and also seeking not to get killed that he converts. He becomes a monk. And it's not long after that that he's out walking and praying and other robbers attack him. But they had no idea what they were getting into because St. Moses the Ethiopian defeats all of them, the story goes, captures them, and then takes them back to the monastery. And he says to the other monks who were there, he says, I want to kill them, but I don't think I should do that now. (laughs) And then all of them convert. (laughs) This is uh, not going to be Sanctuary's new evangelistic strategy. But it worked for St. Moses, right? Defeat them and they convert. But this is a way that we live in community. When you are attacked, and you will be, take that sword from them. Take that spear from them. And with praise in your mouth, we can return it to them and wisely, discerningly remind them that we are obligated to one another. Not because we like each other, not because we have some shared history, but because we are claimed by one who will not let us go. Our relationship to one another is not about our shared history, but about our history with God who has said, you are mine and you are mine, and so we have to learn to live together. This is what we're about to celebrate at this table Like the original disciples, some of us are afraid to fall asleep around others of us. Jesus collects this group of zealots and fishermen and tax collectors, those who have no concern with the politics of the day, those who had sided with Rome, and then those who had committed to killing Romans and everybody else who sided with them. And he looks at all of them and he says, come, Follow me. Eat with one another. Pray with one another. Fall asleep next to one another. The kind of trust that that requires. That's what we have in this room. Funny enough, some of you are assassins and some of you are tax collectors. And some of you choose to remain blissfully unaware, which is wonderful. But when we are gathered together in this room, we all stand here with double-edged swords, with praise on our lips, 
And we say to one another, I won't wound you if you won't wound me. But even when we do, not if we do, even when we wound one another, let those wounds be the wounds of friendship. Let those wounds be the wounds of Christ. And if I'm wounded by you, let me accept it as my share in Christ's suffering. And if I wound you, my prayer is that we can accept it as your opportunity to be like Jesus. So let's stay together. Let's stay together long enough to let the healing of God come. Amen.